Okay, we're back. Welcome back to another episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. My name's Sina and I love following the journeys of other young entrepreneurs. And in this episode, I spoke with Charlie Bullock, the founder of Campus, a startup he founded while at university that was eventually acquired by a larger company, GradTouch, which he is now working for. Campus is a startup focused on connecting student societies to corporates who want to sponsor them. We talk about the origins of Campus and how he managed to start it while at university and carrying on working on it part-time while working at KPMG and the eventual build-up towards the acquisition. It's a really cool story, so be sure to stay tuned. It was a real, real pleasure talking to Charlie and I definitely learned a lot because it's the first time actually uh, we've had so many different you know, varieties of people on the podcast, but this is the first time we have had someone who's actually, uh, his business has been acquired by someone like a, a larger company. So yeah, it really opened my eyes to a different sort of thing uh, that I haven't, you know, we, have, I, we haven't actually explored that much before. And I really hope you enjoy it as well. And that brings me to this week's shout out. So in case you don't remember, every week I am doing a shout out to someone who's left a written review on Apple Podcasts because I want to show you guys some love <laughs> after you guys are listening. And I know um, all the comments don't go unnoticed. I definitely you know read them all. And so in this week's shout out, it goes to Jeb, who says, great podcast with an amazing host. It's a refreshing to see other young people exploring themes uh, surrounding entrepreneurship and business. His two years of success and many more episodes. Thank you so much, Jeb. And if you, like Jeb, want to feature in the next episode, be sure to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't have Apple, like if you don't have an iPhone, just message me on Instagram. Uh, follow me while you're there. <laughs> but message me on Instagram and I'll give you a shout out anyway because I want to be nice. Big announcement as well. I was on the BBC, <laughs> in case you didn't see. I was on BBC Asian Network and I talked about the podcast. So if you've come from the BBC Asian Network, I don't know how many listeners they have, but if you came from there, uh, welcome. And I hope you enjoy <laughs> We just talk about entrepreneurship, we talk about young entrepreneurs and and yeah, all of that good stuff. So if you are a new listener, welcome and I think you'll enjoy. <laughs> if you missed my appearance on, on BBC, uh, don't worry, I'm going to be on it in the future as well. <laughs> in two weeks time, I'm going to be on it uh, talking about, you know, I'll make an announcement about this, but I'm going to be talking about social media and the sort of mental health struggles that come with it for our generation. Uh, after the episode that me and Damien had a few weeks ago, check that out if you haven't. It's a really, really good episode. But after that episode, uh, I thought that was a really good one. And it's the sort of thing that I think in the future we'll explore a bit more. Uh, the mental health side of, of entrepreneurship, especially for our generation. So yeah, that's why I think it's such an important issue. And that's why I think the BBC want to talk about it as well. Um, so yeah, I'll be talking about that with the panel. And so, yeah, if you, I'll make an announcement for it. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, let me know. Maybe we can explore a few more things about that. And anyways, let's get on with the episode. All right. Hey, Charlie, how you doing? Hi, Sina. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Mate, I'm good. I just came off the BBC interview and I'm like, <laughs> I was so nervous. Uh, but yeah, I did it and I was happy I did it. And now I'm recording with you. Yeah, so mate, it was, it was awesome. I listened to it. So it's BBC... Uh, was it Asian Network? Yeah, BBC Asian Network. Um, I don't know, like, I have to get, I don't know if I have to get the recording from them because I don't really know, yeah, I don't know this stuff. Like, 
the guy butchered my name as well like he just did <laughs> he just butchered my name i was like you know what? I'll, let, I'll let it slide like it's fine we don't have much time so i can't i can't like correct him my surname is quite difficult so i was like you know what? Just, i'll let it slide and i'll carry you on probably did a better job than i would be able to pronounce your your second name so yeah i mean it's a tough one i can't lie but your name is very easy it's just charlie yeah so <laughs> true it's very easy to say but yeah like how about what are you working on nowadays? I'm currently at a company called gradtouch.co.uk um, uh, and they are a, one of the leading uh, UK graduate employers. Uh, so previously I started Campus, uh, which is uh, which was a platform to connect university societies with the big uh, employers in the UK. Uh, and we we sold that in September 2019 to GradTouch. So that's where I'm, where I'm at now. Maybe, like, there's so many... I've never actually had, you know, I was speaking to you about this before. I've never had anyone on the podcast that's actually sold their business. Um, so there's a lot of like new new things that I really want to explore because, yeah, it's something that I haven't come across before. And it's, I feel like it's more common than people think as well. That's the thing. Like, I know people hear the headlines of like, I don't know, Instagram is sold to Facebook and all of that stuff. But I don't think people realize that because like one of my friends who's actually been on the podcast before, I'm not going to name, actually, yeah, he he's like in the process of potentially selling his business too. And yeah, I feel like it's more common than people think. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, like it, it's, it's a natural part of business really. And, and it's something that I'm doing in my current role actually. So at GradTouch, we're quite an acquisitive company and I'm, as part of my job at the moment is, is looking for companies to acquire. Um, the reason you don't hear about them is because most transactions are so small that um, most news outlets wouldn't pick it up or really care about it. But but yeah, I mean, in in the SME world, there's so much duplication in cost structures within different companies. Um, the kind of companies we look to acquire, you know, they have the same kind of back office functions, which there's just no need for those, that kind of duplication, really. So, but yeah, you're yeah. right. Not the the kind of glamour big unicorn exits you hear in, in, in the news aren't <laughs> indicative of real life really yeah yeah obviously they're like the the ones that are on here but i'm just saying like they're, they're more common than people think and so how about like where did you like what is campus and like how did you start it sure so so i started uh campus when i was in my final year of university really uh, and just to answer your second question first of all it's it's a it's a platform to connect big graduate employers with university societies uh, that that connection normally comes in the form of sponsorship uh, so that the employer will sponsor the society and in return the society will provide some kind of access to their mailing list or or something to to allow the employer to market their graduate opportunities and we also are now working with some brands who are looking to sponsor societies um, so how I came up with the idea I was in it was in my third year of uni uh, I was leading the LSE Entrepreneurs Conference, which was a conference of about 500 people, about 15 speakers or so. And we had a we had a, a great audience attending, but we just couldn't raise sponsorship. And I thought, yeah. and I, I was I was kind of intrigued why, because it was we had such a valuable proposition to our sponsors, but hmm. we just couldn't get through to them, the right people. Yeah. Uh, there's so many gatekeepers. <laughs> um, such a slow moving frustrating process there's so much paperwork it has to go from the employer then to the student union and by the time that's all happened like the conference is already you know, yeah go mate, ahead, it's a so. long process i was in the same boat as well it's such a long process 
it is especially when we're talking like maybe 500 quid for sponsorship uh, yeah and you, you're signing yeah. 30 page contracts it's, it's a nightmare um yeah so, like, so yeah it's so long so yeah it's so long like when i was at the bristol entrepreneur society like we tried to get sponsorship it was like, yeah it was literally like 500 pounds and we had to like our biggest incentive for the business was like freshers fair so we were like sign up with us and we can put you at freshers fair um like advertise you and like we had to go to the student union and get all the paperwork and stuff and they were so slow and they were trying to like there was just so much like bureaucracy i hate this so much but like yeah yeah like eventually we got it over the line before freshers fair but like if they took a bit longer like we might not have signed it before freshers fair and it might not have happened so like yeah, that like sure. that whole process takes so long. Uh, yeah, and and the other thing, like you said, that was kind of a planned sponsorship effort. But a lot of what we saw in the market was, for example, like when we were doing conferences or uh, big sporting matches where you want to get sponsored kit. It's really hard to do ad hoc because these kind of companies they have a budget which they set at the start of the year, as you know, in like the sponsorship world, and it's taken by the end of the year. So we were so we were trying to tap into not the sponsorship budgets but actually the the budgets where i think societies can offer the most value which is the employment budgets or the graduate recruitment budgets um so that's yeah that that's where we really saw the opportunity what do you what do you so what do you like mean by that just like give a bit more detail sure so how sponsorship works really is that um you'll go you'll you'll approach in a big employer and then you'll go right here here's what you, we can offer you um and then it will come out this the, the, it will come out a, a a company's sponsorship budget if they're a large enough they're a large enough company. Whereas what we were looking for was actually societies have such great niches of people they're really targeted, really focused. For example, we might work with the Imperial Data Science Society, and some of our clients like Vodafone are looking for data scientists. So we can offer them such laser laser focused. Uh, niches and differentiated groups of people which really you just can't get um, anywhere else in the in the graduate recruitment space so that that's that's kind of what the opportunity we saw okay so it was around it was around like sponsorship in the goal that these companies that work with you guys and work with the societies got really like good people to work at them in the future yeah i mean it's so so most companies in the UK, they spend, well, I'm talking like the big employers, the big graduate employers, they spend upwards of a couple of thousand, three thousand pounds maybe per graduate to employ them. Uh, it's really expensive. And a lot wow. of that cost comes from, a lot of the cost comes from advertising to st- students because even today with the likes of Facebook marketing and Instagram marketing and Google kind of advertising where they offer these focused advertising solutions, it's still, it's still a, you be, the big employers still take a relatively blanket approach. Um, so what we offered them was instead if you're looking for a data scientist or if you're looking for uh, a female or a woman who studies a STEM subject they can go and sponsor the Bristol Women in STEM Society Um, so it was that kind of it was that focus which we gave to the employers which to be honest they didn't really have before in the market unless they went to some of the big jobs boards yeah so like previously how it worked is that these corporates would have to go directly to the societies that they want to go after is that right and then you guys kind of it, provide the intermediate the, inter- the intermediate service is that right yeah exactly right so before i mean i mean it was normally the other way around it was actually normally the societies which would, which would go to the big big companies 
because the big companies wouldn't really have a um, their finger on the pulse of which societies were even in action at any one time. Um, but they would have to go to the the, the employer, then they would have to uh, get a contract off the employer, they'd have to get signed by the student union, the student union would have to then send it back to the employer. The employer would then pay the student union, which would then pay the society, which can take weeks. Uh, and when you when you've got an event, sometimes you know weeks weeks makes a huge difference if you're trying to run an event or if you're trying to get new sports kit or, um, or something along those lines. So we talked about starting the business, and I really like you went you came from an idea, and obviously like we talked before about how you're not like a tech guy by background. So how did mm-hmm. you go from the idea, like knowing that there's something that you know knowing that there might be something here and seeing the problem to building something to action that sure yeah so like you said i i I studied accounting and finance at at university um not a techie not a techie degree um and to be honest it was pretty dry at times which is why i became so heavily involved in societies which really interested me like the entrepreneurs conference and society and, and those kind of things and and yeah so i was passionate about the idea but i was incredibly frustrated that I couldn't build it. Um, to be clear, like I've always been relatively entrepreneurial. Um, I've always had ideas in the past and I've I had my own Amazon business and eBay business when I was still at school, but they didn't need tech knowledge. But when I was at uni, yeah, I, I had these ideas, but I, I didn't want to rely on a, an outsourced developer um, because number one, they're really expensive. And number two, if you have no technology, it's very easy to get ripped off. And something I often advise people to this day is don't, go straight for an outsourced development company or because if you don't have any technology it's very hard to judge what their output is um so yeah i i took the decision to to learn how to code myself uh in my final year of university i took a took a six thousand pound loan out from the government i think it's called the professional and career development loan or something like that i'm not sure if they're still around but it was an interest-free loan that you get um, from the government while you're studying, and then it's a very low rate of interest you have to pay back. And with that money, I I did a nine-week coding course at a company called La Wagon, which I can't recommend highly enough. Um, so La Wagon is a is an intensive coding bootcamp based in London, and yeah, to be honest, it was one of the most formative learning experiences of my life. I mean, I've done GCSEs, A levels, university degrees, but they're all just kind of very much knowledge-based um, styles of learning where you, you, you memorize things and then you have to regurgitate it for a yeah, test 100%. and that's it. Whereas this mm. was all about learning how to make something. Um, and that was just so inter- so eye-opening, so interesting for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, to this day, I don't code on a day-to-day basis. I haven't done it in, in a couple of years now, but the company that I'm at at the moment, I can contribute to, you know, to the technical strategic decisions as a result of what we're going to build next because I know how much resources it will take. Um, I can talk to technical people on their level uh, if I've got an idea. Uh, I'm also investing now on the side um, and it allows you to you know, really understand the scope of what they need to build and how much resources it's going to take and basically are they bullshitting or not if they can actually build this. Um, so yeah, and, and other things like I learned from the wagon really, I mean, it just makes you incredibly resilient because you actually learn how to learn. Um, so before yeah. you, get, you get spoon-fed all this information, even when you're at uni, you get kind of spoon-fed. But when you do a program like the Wagon where you need to learn, it's, a lot of it is teaching yourself. And most, as most developers will, will know, you never really know everything in coding. So you're always on Google, always trying to learn new things. Um, 
always on forms. So there's a coding form called Stack Overflow and you spend half your time on that. So that's kind of the thing that learning how to code teaches you. It just teaches you how to teach yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, how, that's, that's how I went from, you know, an accounting and finance student to someone who actually understood how to build the tech products and I, and I built the version one myself. But for, for something like, so for something like the idea of campus, like obviously like people have loads of different ideas around sort of the student space. Like I've, I've heard so many different ideas around the student space, not, not just with like sponsorships or whatever, like stuff about, you know, student housing stuff around like, like there's just so many because you know the, we experience the pay the pain points you know directly and we can come up with solutions like it's very close to home you know what i mean but like did you do anything to kind of test whether there would be something there before you built your tech product or like did you did you jump in straight with building the tech yeah so yeah i think so what you're referring to there is but like it's a, it's a form of recency bias right you always want to work on something that's affected you you know, yeah recently. exactly yeah um and that's why you see that's why you see a disproportionate amount of startups focused around university experiences whether that's fun, finding a bar or finding a, something exactly yeah, so that's, well, that's what i mean there's so many different types finding of housing yeah and that's well, that's that was night it was one of the it was i was what 19 20 when i started it so i was very naive and no i didn't i didn't really test the hypothesis of will will anyone want this uh Obviously, looking back now, that's the first thing I would do. I would, I would, I wouldn't go out and build a prototype by myself. I would probably build it on on a Sketch or Figma or something like that, or Balsamic, or even just PowerPoint, or um, just to test the art, see if anyone actually want it. But I knew, but it's a two sided marketplace, right? So I knew mm, that societies yeah. would want it because we're offering them free money, um, and it takes them two minutes to sign up, and they're unlike eBay when you're a seller and you have to keep putting in effort once you've signed up it's all passive so I knew the societies would want it so that was kind of one part of the marketplace solved but you're right did I test did I test the uh the demand side no I didn't I just went out hmm. and started pitching it to the big corporates um yeah is, yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend doing it that way so if it's something like a two-sided market it's even harder I would say uh I guess it depends. But in most cases, building a two-sided market requires a lot more effort. For something like campus, you have to have the societies there and the corporates there at the same time. You can't have one without the other. Like, you can't. how do you persuade societies to come on when there's no corporates? How do you persuade corporates to come on when there's no societies? Like, so how did you kind of, did you know about this before or did you just kind of jump in? And like, which side was kind of easier to get on? You alluded to societies. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so I read a quote about this a couple of weeks ago, actually. I think it was like, it's a startup called OpenTable. It's probably not a startup anymore, but they, when they talk about building a marketplace, they just said that we, we go on single player mode. So we just, we went on single player mode in our, in our campus project where we just blitzed the societies for like three months straight. Um, you kind of, I mean, without deceiving anyone, you have to kind of come up with the, the promise of we came up with the promise of future demand right so we went we were saying there's no one on the platform at the moment or we maybe we, did, we weren't so clear about that but we were saying there will be um and it takes societies like i said <laughs> five minutes to sign up so it's not a big ask yeah and we're saying you know the expected value of what you might get is a couple of hundred quid this year or maybe a, a few grand so i think it was a fair deal and uh, what was lucky about our marketplace really was that once you're signed up it's completely passive you'll get a text message and an email saying 
Vodafone wants to sponsor you. You don't have to go out and actively seek sponsorship. So um, that was probably slightly lucky that our, our, the marketplace we were creating was structured like that. It's probably not a true marketplace, really, in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. And, yeah, and- like, no, I was just going to say, like, I I know with with something like, so I was the vice president of a society and I know that if you came to me with this sort of promise, even saying like, listen, we're like, we're not, we're just starting out, but in the future, like I know we're going to get corporates on. Like there's no, it's not, I don't lose anything. So I'd say yes. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not asking you to, um, yeah, we're not asking, we weren't asking anyone to pay. So that probably makes it a lot easier. And it was an entirely free proposition. I really wanted to talk to Charlie about how it was like, you know, the difficulties in starting a business around a two-sided market because with a two-sided market, there's a classic like egg, chicken and egg problem where you can't have one side without the other. And so I really wanted to see if it was really difficult for him to start off in the first place. Yeah, I mean, what makes it difficult is when you're doing it part-time, right? So I, I had a full-time job uh, the whole way through. So you're, you're constantly trying to service both sides of the marketplace while working a nine to five or often nine to seven. Um, so, so yeah, it was hard. Yeah. I mean, I took, I took a few, when we, like I said, the supply side of the marketplace, I just took a couple of weeks off during freshers fairs, which is in the UK. I think it's like end of September, maybe the start of October and just went and, and blitzed all the freshers fairs and, um, going up, flying up to Edinburgh, going back down to Manchester, Bristol. Uh, the London <laughs> unis were easy because they're all clumped so close together. But, you know, when, yeah, you're yeah. Doing the, when you're doing Aberdeen, or no, I think it was Glasgow that we did, which was just it was a nightmare to get to. Um, but yeah, like for us, it was very much a blitz on the, on the supply side of the marketplace, the societies. Um, and then once we had that, it was kind of a bit of a war of attrition, getting the corporates to sign up and flexing to their demands really yeah so you got to the point where you got all these societies on board like how how long did that whole process take so did you build did you build out the society part first and then you were like okay we've got enough societies on board enough you know variety as well enough diversity to be able to go to different corporates and be able to sell this sure so i think one of the misunderstandings understandings we had about the marketplace uh was we really at the start went for for quantity over quality societies oh so, really? yeah so what the big employers want they, they well what the big employers struggle with is hitting certain niches within the demographic um which are typically underrepresented so whether that's people who study stem or whether that's women going into finance roles and um, there's always going to be underserved portions of society in specific functions um Mm. we did i mean i started this when i was at uni so i had no idea about the recruitment space so we was like well we're just going to get a hundred thousand university uh, sorry a hundred thousand students signed up uh doesn't matter if they come from men's rugby or the quidditch society we don't care we just want them signed up um whereas kind of later on down the line we actually realized that when we were talking to these um, employers and actually when they were putting orders through it, they were hitting the same same kind of societies all the time um, which were the focused career societies and also those societies which were uh, representative of under underserved de- demographics in the marketplace. Oh, that's interesting. So from when you learn about this, like when you learn about that, I guess the next stage is just <laughs> just to sack off like Quidditch, sack off the Pokemon yeah. society, sack off those boys. Yeah, <laughs> well, well we, did, we, we didn't sack them off per se. We just didn't... P- 
we didn't put any effort into going and signing them up. So they still, yeah, I mean, yeah. they're still, if I go into Slack today and have a look at the societies, because we get a few signing up every single day without any effort. And some of them are you know, ridiculous. The cheese society, the, the beer society, which no, not many employers are going to specifically target. Some, some still get sponsorship, yeah. but um, for us, we're all about that. Now we've realized that, the, the focus ones get so much proportionally get so much more sponsorship um, for example the Imperial Data Science Society was was um, was really high up in the rankings of our most sponsored societies because they're they're really high in demand by employers um, same with the Bristol Women in STEM Society they, they're way up there um, and yeah the, it's safe to say the Quidditch Society isn't getting many sponsorship requests before before the exit before the exit did you like what was the sort of aim for this like yeah because you said the exit was a surprise thing like before we talk about the exit um like what was the sort of aim and ambition for you building this yeah i mean at the end of the day i just wanted to create a product which would or a platform which would alleviate the issues i had when i was at university right um spent countless hours wasting time um filling in stupid contracts etc um and yeah, I mean, I never, I obviously wanted to become as big as possible. And um, once again, in hindsight, the thing I learned was to kind of truly understand the market structure and the market size before you go into a, a project, especially if you want to make it massive. If, if you're happy with just creating a, sw- a small project um, like you are with peppercorns, for example, and just kind of alleviating some some issues in, in the market, that's fine. But we, I did want to get it big at the start. And then I realized the market just wasn't huge because... Although the, the global graduate recruitment market is big, it's so yeah, it's so different in every single country, and, and it's a very, it's a very much like a, a it's a, it's very hard to expand geographically. So I, I kind of realised that relatively early on, and and thought, well, it's never going to become big. I've got a full time job. I don't. I think if I if I wasn't working a full time job, I don't think it would actually would have been that much bigger. So I was quite happy running it as a side project with a, a few close friends of mine. Um, and then, yeah, like, like you said, when, when we finally got out of the business, that was completely unexpected because we weren't trying to exit it and we weren't, and we weren't trying to scale it massively. We were, we did try and raise funding at one point. Um, and it's probably through those conversations with, with investors, with professional investors, likes of venture capitalists, et cetera, that I kind of realized it is not a venture scale company and it probably won't be, um, unless we completely pivot the model but i was very happy with the model as it was um so yeah it was always going to be a side project i think so that like that must have been quite difficult for you because you were and i'll get your thoughts on this later in a bit like how how was it like because when you were working full-time at kpmg you said um like and you said you were always entrepreneurial it must have been quite tough like with your side business and obviously you wanted to grow as big as possible but then venture capitalists all these investors saying like it wasn't for them it wasn't big enough for you was that quite disheartening or like what were these sort of emotions at that stage yeah it's a very good question i think for me it was always a release like i I, i'm naturally entrepreneurial i'm not naturally an auditor and i was auditing at the time to pass my ac exams which are chartered accountancy yeah. exams in the uk so for me it was like a form of entertainment so i really enjoyed it um you know sometimes i've gone the xbox sometimes i'll just work on this on this idea <laughs> so that's how i always saw it um but you're right like <laughs> when you it's 
you get shot down a lot, especially when at the start, when I had it, it was more ambitious. I am. Um, and I wanted to probably, I, I saw it, you know, I was trying to raise two or 300,000 pounds to scale it hugely. And then I realized it's not a venture scale company. I think once you come to that realization, um, scale really isn't everything. And then we kind of, I just realized, you know, we, we helped, we sponsored societies collectively, which probably had, we probably contributed to hundreds of societies in terms of financial sponsorship. And I'm happy with that. I think we've done a good job. Um, and it's allowed me, I think that the thing I got out of most of it, which is not anything financial, was just learning. I was 23 when we sold it. And in those three three or four years, I've learned so much uh, about starting a company and, and things that I'd do again. And now I'm only 24, so I can do it all again at some point with a, a lot more knowledge, hopefully. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a crazy journey. So let's talk about the exit for a little bit. Like how how did that happen? I'm really interested in this because this is like, I guess loads of people must be waiting to hear this bit. Yeah, well, I mean, it was completely unexpected. And so we we realized early on that, well, probably halfway through the, the journey that we were all working part-time jobs and, and you can't go and pitch these big employers after work or at the weekends because they're off work. So unless we took days off or we employed someone, we couldn't really go and directly pitched the big employers um, all the time, um, especially when we're in competition with other companies in the graduate recruitment space. So, but what we could do is a couple of days a month, go and talk to the big agencies in the market, which then they look after 30 clients themselves. And we, we were trying to come up with some kind of partnership agreement. Um, because at, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we partnered with about 10 or 11 big employers, um, but that was it. That was like our, and they were big contracts, but we never really got past that. And then we thought, okay, we'll, we'll partner with the agencies. Uh, the first agency we met with um, liked it. They started using it. And then the second agency we met with um, offered us, after a few months, we kind of came to some kind of agreement where they'd invest uh, and take over 51% of the company. So they would take financial control and then we would operate it as minority shareholders. Um, oh, cool. For, for various other reasons, that never went ahead. And that took about three months of our time trying to negotiate the offer. Um, so then we went back to the drawing board, started building it again ourselves um, and started building the relationships again. And then a couple of months after that, so September last year, uh, we, were, we met with a company called GradTouch. I met with the head of marketing, first of all, um, and she really liked the idea. And then she said, okay, come back in a couple of weeks. So in a couple of weeks, I took the day off work. Uh, to go back down to London to meet with the founder um, or the two co-founders of GradTouch. And they just sat me down and said, yeah, we really like it. Um, have you ever considered about exiting the business um, or what your future <laughs> plans with the business? And I said, well, I'm happy running it as a side project. And they said, well, you can still run it as a side project and we'll take it off your hands and we'll pay you. Um, and then I said, yeah, that's good, but I don't want to stay at, you know, stay at KPMG my whole life. I've got um, I don't want to be an auditor my whole life. And they and they made the offer, you know, as part of the purchase that they, the whole team, so there was four of us at the time who were still actively involved, could join GrabTouch as well as pay us for for the um, for the IP for the and for the whole company. So yeah, that's how that's how we kind of got to where we are today. That's so cool. What yeah. what were the mo like? What were you feeling when like I've never actually talked to anyone that's that's sold their business. So. 
Like, well, like at the beginning when you said you negotiated those three months, I know it was a different one, but how did that kind of feel when that fell through? That must have been like pretty, pretty disheartening. Yeah, I mean, it was massively disheartening, but in hindsight, it was very lucky because I don't think that was the right company um, for us. Yeah. They were more focused on, without going into the technicalities of the industry, they were more focused on a, a different side of the market than what, what campus is really good for, um, which is the big employers. Uh, the smaller employers, you know, the people employing one or two people a, a year, they don't really care for societies. But so we probably got out of that one quite luckily. And and it was a, it was a, yeah, we went off on very good terms. And I still speak to the the, the founder of that company. We went off on good terms. Um, but yeah, it was disheartening because I always wanted campus to succeed, and I knew it was only ever going to get so big with the limited resources of the few hours a week that I could contribute whilst working a full-time job and my co-founders could contribute and and our time was probably getting that we were able to contribute was getting less and less the more senior we got into our various other roles because they just demand more time so what do you think what do you think would have happened with like campus if if this exit didn't come in like if you because like as you said like you'd go more senior high up in kpmg you'll probably like want to leave like go progress somewhere else uh like yeah, your time will become more and more limited. So do you ever think about that? I do. I mean, it would be a different, completely different question if there was it was uh, COVID-19 was still happening when I was exiting because everyone has an extra two or three hours a day where they're not commuting, et cetera. So they could, I, I think there's a, I'd be surprised if a lot more people weren't taking up small side projects on it at the moment. Um, but yeah, yeah, where do I see it? Where, where do I see it? Um, I'd like to say it would still be going on, um, but it was yeah, it was never it was never a massive company because we were just so limited by our the business development side of things. But it was breaking, yeah, it was probably it was well, it was more than breaking even, but it wasn't it probably wasn't enough to sustain four or five people's full time jobs. But um, yeah, I think I'd still be running it, making the time, or we probably. I mean, I'm very interested in 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 businesses where they basically small SME businesses where the founder wants to kind of leave the day-to-day running but they want to but they hire someone else um yeah to run the business and i'm I'm seeing that a lot more um in other companies so that that could have potentially been an option as well yeah i'm seeing that quite a lot more as well actually um like it's quite strange to think about that like because i guess everything kind of happened for a reason like the whole so the three-month negotiation broke down and then you guys pitching to grad touch about taking the um the product on and then them coming back to you saying actually we'll acquire it like it all kind of seemed like it was very sort of like step by step but if you like if at the time it must have seemed very hectic but looking back like with hindsight it seemed like it all kind of made sense does that make sense to you <laughs> i know yeah, i probably explained that really bad no i know no, no, i think you explained it well like it, everything it seemed completely hectic because you know, one minute I was coming out something with KPMG, the next minute I was looking at a, an an NDA that was sent over by Grad Touch, and then and then a shareholders agreement was sent over by Grad Touch, and then I'm back to my work at KPMG, and we we're all in that same boat. So it was incredibly hard to keep track of what was going on. Um, but now you're right, and to be honest, that's something I'm when I'm looking to invest in a few companies at the moment. That's something that I'm actually looking at in terms of how's the market structured, and is there a natural big player in the market which could take on or acquire a, a small startup in the space as an exit and that's so yeah i mean that's that's kind of something that i'm actually proactively looking for now as an opportunity 
for the investments that I'm making going forward. So what was sort of like, I know that you talked about loads of lessons that you've learned, but what were the sort of like big ones that you think people can take away from you and your journey? Sure, yeah. So I think we've touched on most of them, um, to be honest, but like the, the one that you alluded to really was the, the importance of testing the assumptions that you, that you make at the start of the journey. So on our side, we never tested any, well, we didn't test any of the sides of the business, but the demand side, we kind of just got away with because we were, like we said, we were offering students free money for doing very little. The supply side of the marketplace, um, I wish we, I wish we scoped out and did some, and did some interviews and some kind of uh, wireframing sessions with the employers before we started creating it because it would have saved us days and days of time. Um, so yeah, and then I think finally is like understanding, kind of understanding the market structure and the dynamics of the market before you go into it. I mean, it's very hard to understand any kind of market when you're fresh out of university because you've never worked in a real job or yeah. so you're probably very, you're very naive when you come out of university, you think, you know, the, the, you think the person at the bottom of the, the corporate ladder is, is the decision maker and will be able to make 5,000 pound decisions, but they can't do that. Um, so we spent a mm. lot of time wasted trying to pitch these people who are fresh, who were, who had been in the HR role for one year out of university and we were pitching. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of waste of time, but it, they were all learning opportunities. Um, also think something else that one point of naivety was assuming everyone was very altruistic and everyone w- wanted to give money to societies and wanted to, uh, wanted to help out. Uh, that's obviously not the case. So that's why we made campus an incredibly data driven product because we realized that at the end of the day, it's all about tracking clicks and, and tracking return on investment. And that's really what corporates care about. Um, so, so yeah, understanding that the incentives in the marketplace is something that I wish I did try to do earlier on, as opposed to just looking at the problem space as opposed to just trying to build out the solution. Um, really? Yeah, for sure. No, those exact, the exact same lessons I learned as well. Like I was, I went straight, like at the beginning, I was like, yeah, let me go straight towards building the tech. Um, and like, I actually spoke to a, another founder of another company. Um, he was a bit older and like a bit further on in his journey. And he was like, yeah, like don't build, tech at all like just don't do that because you don't understand you know you don't know the problem well enough you don't understand the the market you don't know what the consumers want um you have to understand all of this test it in a really low cost way and then like yeah and then you can actually build tech to actually scale that and that really that really stayed with me like like i didn't really that was for me it was was really strange because i thought like you had to go straight towards tech <laughs> but then like yeah. yeah as time went on that his advice really made sense to me yeah i i completely agree with that I, the one thing i would say with with building out of tech products is now I, I i say nowadays it makes me sound very old but like <laughs> it's it's there's a lot of no code solutions which exist so uh yeah. webflow or even squarespace um where you can build or zapier if you're slightly more technical which is you can build out solutions uh, which aren't custom code, but you can build out very close solutions in a in a relatively short period of time, which almost mirror the true functionality of your products. Obviously, when you dive deep into it, they'll break or there won't be enough customization. But you could, for most mm. ideas, I mean, we could probably now build Campus, the early MVP or the early prototype of Campus in in a, a mishmash of Webflow and Google Sheets and other kind of uh, products like that. So I do think. There is still, I still do believe in building early prototypes. Where you, you might want to do that on 
on pen and paper or you might want to do that on a no code solution yeah um, if you're comfortable with it yeah what i meant what i meant is that try to do it basically as low cost as possible as low tech as possible yeah. so you can easily like change and, and and kind of like yeah pivot as quickly as possible and there's no sort of sunk Agreed. cost with with like building tech and you know investing your time so i think that's the yeah, biggest that's sort of advice so i got and it's exactly what you said as well so yeah it's good <laughs> anyways we have to wrap it up there thank you so much charlie for speaking to me um about your journey like i know loads of people must be really like listening about how an exit strategy kind of happens and how it kind of comes about and for you it really seems like you didn't go for it on purpose as in it was it was very much by accident very much by not luck but you in the right place at the right time but that was from kind of working hard at it and keep you know arranging these meetings and that's something that I'm a big advocate for like I know loads of people say oh he was just like lucky but like I said this on another podcast I was a guest on I was like if you work hard and keep putting yourself out there eventually you will become lucky um so yeah like massive massive like applause to you and um it's really cool to hear your story thank you you know it's an absolute pleasure thank you Suna. so how can people stay in touch with you stay in touch with what we're doing in the future sure yeah so um if you want to stay in touch with me, I suppose, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is UK Charlie with two E's at the end. Uh, or if you, I mean, if, if you're a student out there or, or, or a recent graduate and you're looking for a, for a graduate job, you can sign up to gradtouch.com. And that's G-R-A-D-T-O-U-C-H.com. All right, sweet. Thank you so much, Charlie, again. And I'll definitely see you soon. Have a good day. Brilliant. Thank you, Sina. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Charlie. And if you did, please be sure to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts because it really, really helps me out. You don't realize, but it really, really does. And if you do, uh, I'll give you a shout out in the next episode. You don't have to just leave on Apple Podcasts if you don't have a, an iPhone. You can always message me on Instagram. I'll reply to all my messages. I made a comment earlier in the episode in the introduction part of it where I said if you guys want to explore more mental health things, you know, the mental health side of starting your business for our generation, let me know because I know, you know, I can get some amazing guests on for that sort of thing Um, because that episode did really well and people really enjoyed it. And so, yeah, if you guys are really interested in that sort of thing, let me know, message me on Instagram and yeah, we we can explore that topic a lot more. Um, I think it's a really, really important topic, but I'll only, you know, explore it if you guys really wanted to explore it as well, um, because I think it's really important. And stuff, other stuff as well, like personal finance, we, we did that as well. That episode did pretty well too. So yeah, if you're interested in sort of different topics that we haven't really explored before, such as those two, but not limited to them, you can literally message me about anything really. Uh, <laughs> I will get something sorted. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode and I'll catch you in the next one.